I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, and I am your favorite soft drink that you had to put a mask on to buy at the grocery store. <laughs> uh, cool. I'm Matt Bernico, and I'm living a purpose-driven, socially distanced life. <laughs> um, Rick Warren, what a guy. I wonder what he's up to nowadays. I don't wonder. <laughs> I've never wondered, actually. <laughs> uh, congrats. Uh, lucky you. Uh, the rest of us over here are, are stuck. Uh, this is like <laughs> holding a sneeze. We're never going to know what Rick Warren is up to. There's no way to find out. Um, and thank God for that. So uh, we're not talking about Rick Warren this time around, but we are talking about social distancing. We are talking about COVID-19. We're continuing our Magnificast uh, reporting our uh, top quality, top notch, extremely well vetted and edited uh, journalistic practices on this show. Um, and we are going to talk about coronavirus and all the things that are happening in light of structural violence. Surprise. <laughs> That's a, a big theme on the Magnificast in general, trying to find the right language to talk about violence and all the nuance that comes with it. Um, that obsession has a little bit to do, for sure, with our latent pathologies that are left over from being weird Christian anarchists, both of us were at one time, who were um, pacifists or nonviolent folks. Uh, nothing wrong with that, by the way, just our own part of by way of our own <laughs> historical curiosity, I guess. Uh, but generally, journey, if you're, exactly, it's all part of the journey. Um, if you're somebody on the left, though, it's good to have a, a nuanced understanding of violence and the way uh, the violence operates. Um, so we're going to do a little bit of that, drawing that out in light of the current pandemic. Yeah, uh, if you've listened to the Magnificast even one time, you know that we talk about violence sort of philosophically a lot. Um, there are already so many episodes on violence. Uh, we put together a big Spotify playlist about it. You can find it if you search for me on Spotify, I guess. Um, but this time around, we're going to apply some of those big ideas about violence to um, what we've kind of been parsing out about the current situation surrounding COVID-19. Um, so I don't really know what it's like where you live. Hopefully it's okay. <laughs> but um, as I walk through my neighborhood, which I do every day because I need to escape my house, um, I see <laughs> signs just plastered in windows everywhere. And they all say, we're all in this, we're all in this together. And I got to tell you, <laughs> uh, I'm a curmudgeon. I'm grumpy. Um, I'm pessimistic. All those things are true. But we are not all in this together. <laughs> Uh, from <laughs> from the perspective of historical materialism, that good Marxist science. <laughs> so the, the, the bummer message, science, if you will. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the uh, the message behind the sentiment is something I can appreciate. It's fine, right? It's like you know, kind of the idea behind solidarity a little bit, but um, expressed at this level of idealism, it's not true. Um, some of us are in this more than others. And as the numbers tick up on the CDC website, it's easy to forget these numbers are, you know, representing real bodies out there. Um, that these these numbers are also not evenly distributed across the population in the United States or across the world. Um, these aren't just any bodies. In fact, they uh, are, according to a few analyses, the, the bodies of predominantly black and brown uh, people in their communities. As it turns out, uh, in the U.S., counties with a majority black population uh, reported three times the COVID-19 infection rate than of majority white counties. 
Um, and those same counties reported a mortality rate nearly six times that of majority white counties. So uh, there is a trend there. And I think we need to unpack that trend. Um, you know, around the world, uh, poor and anti-capitalist nations have to compete with capitalist bully nations for medical supplies and other things, right? So I guess all, all I'm trying to say here is that uh, it's nice to say that we're all in this together. But um, some of us have a little bit more skin in the game than others. And uh, I think it's like important to recognize how that's actually playing out. Uh, otherwise, I don't know, just kind of saying we're all in this together seems kind of gross and yucky. Uh, we're not all in this together. Yeah, I think that's right. It's not solidarity, even though you can see maybe the kernel of a desire for solidarity or something at the end of the day. It's a, a liberal platitude that, that papers over the need for real solidarity. Um, that might mean that we might have to be a little more uncomfortable or thoughtful or ask ourselves some important questions about how our societies have been designed. Um, a little bit more on this, infection and mortality rates can be explained sociologically in terms of, of uh, systemic racism and capitalism, right? Like these big structures. Uh, but these numbers also present us with a problem of political imagination. So it's one thing to talk about uh, the the analysis and and trying to recognize all these disproportionate rates of suffering and we have to do that um, but we also lack a vocabulary to talk about this kind of systemic death in a way that holds those who are culpable responsible um, so it's really difficult to try to figure out a, a way that is convincing to ourselves and to others to say well this also is not just an accident or an accident of history right there are uh, intentional forces and unwitting and witting forces at work um, and at play that make things the way that they are. So the infection and this illness are not acts of nature that are portioned out to people who are unlucky. Uh, the numbers are the receipts of an ongoing genocide against particular people, uh, of ongoing class war against other people, uh, of ongoing international imperialism, etc. So it's important to figure out uh, how to contextualize these numbers in a, a broader political horizon. So to better an analyze a little bit of the situation, we rounded up some articles about COVID-19 this week that will help us see that violence a little more clearly. We hope anyway, we're going to try our best to pull that out. Um, we'll talk a little bit first about uh, systemic racism and the kind of U.S. situation, but then we'll zoom out a little to talk more internationally about sanctions and that sort of thing. Um, but first, we have to talk about violence again. Um, violence is an important theme for us, maybe not only by way of like historical accident or biographical accident, but also because we are Christians. That's like a big problem for Christians, violence. Uh, it's a big problem because Christians have done a lot of it and they also don't like to talk about it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a, a difficult thing to really face head on. Um, and also under capitalism, I think people are trained to think that violence is something that only really happens when, you know, this specific person hurts that other specific person. Um, but like we said a lot on the show and elsewhere, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, so it's been a while since we've done that. So maybe we could retrace a little bit of that ground and set some of the stage philosophically, I guess. And then we can move into the uh, the reporting and kind of fill that out a bit. So, Matt, I'm going to turn it over to you. Um, imagine this in my, my Seinfeld voice. Uh, what's the deal with violence? Can, I think that you have a better Seinfeld voice within you, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna force you to do it on the. Podcast. It's an off-air Seinfeld voice. That's the thing. <laughs> That's the only time it works. The only time you really sound like Jerry is when you're not recording a podcast. Yeah, yeah. exactly. In my oversized suit. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think before we kind of jump into some of like the big conversation, I guess like so, some of the impetus for this episode comes from. Well, like, I guess just kind of wading through the shit of COVID-19 over the last few weeks. Um, something that, uh, kind of interestingly enough, um, one person who has been like a constant voice, like a public intellectual, I guess, in all of this has been uh, Reverend William Barber, who is the co-founder of the Poor People's Campaign. I don't really want to say much about him. Uh, he's fine. Um, but uh, one point that he keeps making um, during this time is uh he, he he has this interesting rhetorical turn it's not i mean even that interesting i guess but he is really consistently calling uh what is happening to uh low-wage workers uh black people uh other people of color other dispossessed folks um he, he keeps calling what's happening to them during COVID 19 mass murder and mm. um i really appreciate that rhetoric because he isn't wrong um mm -hmm. but I think what's interesting is that like it's just a it's a hard thing 
for other people to think about it that way. I don't know. I don't want to speak for everyone, but like I, I can imagine, I can imagine telling that to my mom, this is mass murder against a, a specific people group. And she'd be like, well, what are you talking about? Like, absolutely not. That doesn't make any sense. But like, I think calling it mass murder is a really helpful intervention into the situation because it is highlighting uh, what is happening in the United States and elsewhere uh, in a real, like, first of all, in a really morally heavy way, but also it highlights it as violence, like as such. And I think what's important about that is that there's somebody who is responsible for it. Um, so, okay. Uh, Reverend Barber, he says that this is mass murder. I tend to agree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Marxists have a different way of talking about it. that I think is also pretty helpful. Um, it's not as rhetorically as strong as mass murder, <laughs> but it's pretty good. Just the same. So, um, you know, the, the sort of thing that we're seeing here, uh, kind of unfolding before us where some people are at a complete disadvantage and their lives are going to be just completely wrecked. Um, this is what you just call class struggle. Um, so this is like a central idea in Marxist philosophy. Um, and I mean, other types of philosophy too, but Marx is the guy, right? Uh, so class struggle, what is it? You might be asking yourself, <laughs> You've come to the right podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so Marx thinks that uh, basically class struggle is like a central tenet of capitalistic, I mean, in basically all societies, uh, there are always two classes positive against one another. Well, not two classes. There's actually a lot of classes if you, you know, yeah. if you want to go back anthropologically. Um, in Marx's uh, the German ideology, he kind of goes back through these, I mean, pseudo anthropologically. I mean, I don't know really how much he knows about all these different things he's talking about sometimes, but um, just the same, he's always laying out these different classes and castes of people as, and how they sort of control the means of production in society. But uh, Marx thinks that it's in within capitalism where uh, all of these kind of classes filter into two, uh, two main classes who are going to kind of, um, you know, struggle it out if you will uh the bourgeoisie and the proletariat or the workers and the you know the owning class the the people who own the means of production the people who just have to sell their labor so that's class struggle and um christians have like a really weird time with this idea i think um i mean there's probably lots of theological reasons for that and maybe some other sociological reasons but like uh i think i think christians have this hard time of of kind of like understanding that like um you know, that they're in the thick of uh, class struggle, whether they want to be or not. And, you know, you can't just like um, love your neighbor out of everything all the time. Um, so uh, to kind of get into this like idea of class struggle and how it relates to Christianity, but also bring it back to this whole COVID-19 situation, uh, I went back to kind of an old classic of the Magnificast, um, an essay that we are constantly talking about. Uh, it is called Class War and Christian Love by Herbert McCabe. And it's a good one. We, I think we reference it probably every time we talk about violence, but I'm going to do it again. <laughs> um, so this is McCabe. I'm going to read just a little bit of an excerpt here where he's talking about um, class war and uh, its relationship to capitalism. And then we can talk about how violence is kind of wrapped up in this. So McCabe says, the central point I wish to make throughout this is that the class war is intrinsic to capitalism. It's part of the dynamic of capitalist process itself. It's not as though somebody said, let's have a class struggle and let's adjust the imbalance of wealth by organizing the poor workers against the rich capitalists. Nothing of the kind. The tension of struggle between worker and capitalist is an essential part of the process itself. What is wrong with capitalism is simply that it is based on human antagonism and it is precisely here that it comes in conflict with Christianity. Capitalism is a state of war, but not just a state of war between equivalent forces. It involves a war between those who believe in and prosecute war as a way of life, as an economy, and those who do not. Um, I think it's just like a helpful uh, reminder and maybe explanation of like what is really going on here, that the type of violence we're seeing with COVID-19 is not like specific to our situation. It's really just a revelation of like what capitalism is always doing, but it's laid bare because of the extreme situation. Um, and I think it's also important to note that you like, you know, no amount of social democracy or whatever is going to get you out of class war. It's going to exist as long as there are people who own the means of production and people who don't own the means of production. Um, you know, as long as there's an extreme gap in, in wealth uh, in this country or any country, class war will continue. And um, I think when we see things like COVID-19 happening and we see people's lives completely wrecked by it, um, I think we have to recognize that this is part of that 
class war that's intrinsic to capitalism. Um, and even, even more so like this is, this is what it looks like when, I, I mean, th this is what it looks like when one side is winning that class war, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's completely the case that um, it, it doesn't have to be this way. I guess is what I'm trying to say <laughs> is that there right. are a group of people who have organized this to happen and um, holding those types of people uh, responsible is important, but also recognizing it, like uh, William Barber said, as mass murder, I think is a, a helpful idea to organize around. Yeah, I mean, it, it is tough. You're right for sure, to sell the idea of mass murder <laughs> or to, to sell that interpretation that is <laughs> not to sell the idea of mass murder. <laughs> no one's buying that's, it. <laughs> yeah, uh, people do buy that all too often, uh, tragically. But um, yeah, it's hard to sell this interpretation, whether it's in Barber's rhetoric or Marx's. I think, though, what's at least useful or helpful to me in, in picking it up and has been in my life is uh, trying to break down, well, what does it actually mean to say that classes are struggling um, like McCabe emphasizes, it doesn't mean that there's like one group of people who, you know, is like actively um, trying to make war against another group that is actively trying to make war um, in response. You know, like there are two generals in like different rooms and like one of them is the proletariat general and one of them is the bourgeois general. I mean, in some cases that ends up being true <laughs> in some parts of the world, right? Uh, but in, in capitalism in general, uh, it is more the case that just the, the nature of the economy itself forces a an imbalance of power that is always imbalanced in it, and it keeps chugging along. So uh, the way that I like to think about it is not in these kind of meta terms of like um, the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat, but more in those uh, nuts and bolts terms. Like Matt, you were talking a lot about who owns the means of production. I think that's really useful because it's like, uh, you know, it, it, capitalists like to tell stories about how capitalism operates, where this is a system of voluntary exchange. So somebody doesn't have a job, um, they go and they interview for a job and they get a job. And it's this kind of mutual process. It's like two people meet in a field um, and they agree this is a good a good deal for both of us. Maybe you have a little more, I have a little less, but we can work something out. Um, the fact is that that never happens. <laughs> Nobody ever meets in a field in, in a plane of total equality, you know, with the same, with all things being equal and they make a deal that's mutually beneficial. Uh, we find ourselves coerced into a life where if you don't work, you starve or can't be housed or you die. Um, and so you, you have to get a job. And the people who are able to give you jobs uh, are not under the same kind of pressures that you are. Or if they are, they certainly have uh, more means at their disposal to do something else if they so chose. Uh, so the balance of freedom is not the same. Um, and what that means is some people are, are coerced, other people are coercing, and the people who are coercing usually do have some idea that that's what's going on. And so they work hard to keep it that way. Uh, and when workers start to organize themselves and get their hands on the weavers of power through things like strikes or whatever, um, you know, the the ruling class has to act in order to stop that from happening, uh, whether that's through legislation that stops that makes it harder to organize or, um, you know, through uh, redlining that makes uh, certain populations um, maybe less uh, able to be housed, etc. Um, so I think it's helpful to just look at things in those kind of like boring but more specific ways because it, it drives home that the struggle is really hard to see because it is so formative on the way that we live our lives. Yeah, that's true. I think that's a really good way of putting it is that, I mean, the the some of the goal of the the people who own the means of production, right? If we're gonna talk about that level is to like kind of make class war seem boring. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I'm just thinking of all of the ways. Uh, so, I mean, I talk about, I, I talk about like uh, labor organizing and like specifically within fast food quite a bit on the podcast as of late because of my life circumstances. But um, uh, I mean, just kind of seeing like that end of things, like, you know, a, a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of time and money and lawyers have been like, pouring their life into making sure that labor law works in this really particular way where like McDonald's workers can't really start a union and like, you know, it's boring as hell. It's not like a super exciting kind of thing, but like keeping at that level um, obfuscates like really who is, who's pulling the strings, like who is at fault and like what exactly the stakes of that struggle even are. Right. Um, 
you know, like when it comes to like making sure labor law works in some ways, like, you know, you can hide behind the rhetoric of fairness and, uh, you know, um, all, all these types of things. All I'm trying to say is that like, it seems boring, but it's actually really important. And you wouldn't know unless you're really like <laughs> invested in that struggle. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's helpful too to recognize too, that, that, that is a, a war, right? Like there, yeah. there are casualties like there are in every war. Um, it just so happens that this war is very boring. Like you wouldn't make a, an apocalypse now movie about it or something. Um, <laughs> or at least if you would, like you have to go out of your way to make it exciting. <laughs> so, um, yeah. All right. So that's, that's a bit on capitalism and classes. Uh, we mentioned though, that there's a, an important racial piece of this. And I think we should start bringing that in here, um, for two reasons. One, because you can't talk about capitalism without talking about race, um, it's it's some people talk about racial capitalism or racialized capitalism. Um, there's all kinds of terms that people have proposed. Uh, I don't know, whatever works for you, that's fine. But at the end of the day, uh, capitalism emerges historically with a racialized component. Um, right. You know, it, it, it buys, uh, it, it names certain bodies as property, black people as property, um, indigenous peoples as expendable or as property, depending on the situation. Uh, right. These, these are not, uh, again, it's not just the case that uh, classes are, are racially evenly distributed either. Um, so that's an important piece. And the second is that uh, class reduction is bad. <laughs> we don't want to do it on this podcast. Uh, some socialists do that and they try to interpret every single um contradiction in the world through class uh but uh the good communists don't that's the official magnificast line i think um, yeah that's good there, there are yeah there are there are multiple that. lines of oppression um <laughs> yeah, yeah and and like i think the really important part of class struggle and also like understanding white supremacy is seeing how they play off one another um, mm-hmm. and like magnify one another in pretty awful ways well yeah exactly uh, maybe getting into some of that just like a little bit and this might even help. Um, I don't know, maybe make that point clearer. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Um, so there's this pretty big uh, study published in the Washington post. Um, it was published uh, back in April, which seems like, I don't know, a thousand years ago at this point. <laughs> um, but I think it still kind of holds up and it's probably, I mean, so the, the data I'm going to cite here is probably, um, you know, it's probably changed since this article is written, but, uh, it's probably just gotten worse is all I'm trying to say. Actually, yeah. I, I know for a fact that it has, but whatever. Anyway, so in an article in the Washington Post uh, called The Coronavirus is Infecting and Killing Black Americans at an Alarmingly High Rate. Um, so just like I said at the beginning of the show, uh, majority black counties face three times the COVID-19 infection rate and nearly six times the mortality rate from the virus. So like um, majority black counties are way more susceptible to COVID-19 and they're way more susceptible to dying from COVID-19. Like not just a little bit more, but like six times more (laughs) so Mm -hmm. much. Um, So the question is like, like what do you make of that data? Right? Like, what do you do with that? Why is that the case? And um, you know, like also like we said at the beginning of the episode too, right? You can just say, well, that's like structural racism. You know, it's, it's manifested in environmentally caused health issues that are prevalent in black populations. Like that is basically it. Um, And that's, I think a helpful thing that illuminates this. So here's a a few uh, quotes from this article that kind of goes on um, to explain a little bit more of like what's happening here. Um, So this is a quote from a city commissioner of uh, Albany, Georgia, which is a place that is uh, incredibly, it's like the epicenter for COVID-19 in Georgia. Um, And anyways, this guy, um, Demetrius Young says historically when America catches a cold, black America catches pneumonia. So like whatever, I mean, the point here is that public health for black communities is always going to be hit harder. And, you know, again, it's, it's for, it's because of structural racism because, um, people in black communities have all these underlying health issues that are usually caused for environmental reasons like asthma or, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so the article goes on to say this, elected officials and public health experts have pointed to generations of discrimination and distrust between black communities and the healthcare system. African-Americans are also more likely to be uninsured and live in communities with inadequate healthcare facilities. Uh, as a result, African-Americans have historically been disproportionately diagnosed with chronic diseases such as asthma, hypertension, and diabetes, underlying conditions that experts say uh, make COVID-19 more lethal. And I think like this is a pretty good example, I guess, of of the ways that yeah, I mean, at this point, like white supremacy and class are kind of like, yeah, playing off one another to create a situation that is incredibly bad. Um, 
because of like I mean like things like you said, Dean, like redlining and um, other other ways to sort of like form and shape Black communities um, and the resources that Black communities have access to. Um, they end up, you know, uh, underserved when it comes to like medicine and health and um, all kinds of other factors. I mean, um, I don't know, I don't know what, um, I don't know any of the data for Toronto or whatever, Dean, but uh, St. Louis has had a whole bunch of um, articles and research done um, when it comes to environmental racism. And like one of the things that they cite uh, that is really terrible is that like a ton of construction gets done in, in black communities. So like if you live in one of those spaces, you're more likely to breathe in asbestos or something terrible like that. Or like, um, you know, uh, in black communities, there's way less access to, um, like supermarkets and like healthy foods so that they're like their food deserts and all these kind of things that just kind of compound on one another, um, to make, uh, yeah, I mean, to set people up to have like a worse off health situation, and then on top of all of that, you know, low wage workers are predominantly black as well. So like there's a class element as, as well. And I, all these things compound on one another to make this like horrible situation where people are, you know, um, are where black communities are going to uh, be hit way harder than white communities. Yeah. And it's telling, too, that uh, public health has always been a part of uh, radical struggles around the world. Um, you know, uh, Cuba uh, prides itself on having uh, doctors and, and medical training, et cetera. Uh, but it, including in the United States, uh, the most radical movements have also always contained a, a public health component, including the Black Panther Party, for instance, who, uh, in addition to having the free breakfast programs and, and clinics and all that kind of thing, uh, they also had a shoe factory, um, the, the People's Shoe Factory, which was in part to provide jobs for people in their community, um, but also because uh, there was a public health issue where um, kids and other people couldn't, uh, like, they would get um, worms and, and, like, foot diseases by virtue of having inadequate um, shoes. And so this was, like, a way of trying to address that systemic problem uh, because, you know, that's a, <laughs> that problem of having inadequate, like, um, footwear or whatever is not a problem that the federal government of the United States is ever going to take an interest in, right? They're not going to provide, like, a national shoe program or something like that. Um, and so it's it's to recognize that public health uh, goes along with people who are um, especially marginalized or doubly marginalized, and, and political radicals have a tradition of, of trying to address that in, in really interesting ways. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, the Black Panther Shoe Factory is a good example of uh, of how radicals have tried to solve these problems. Um, well, more on, I guess, the analysis. Um, so after this article came out in the Washington Post, like a bunch of people wrote about it because <laughs> like that's what you do, right? <laughs> a bunch of data is available and now the take machine starts. Um, right. Uh, but one of the very good takes that came out was from uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, who um, is really famous kind of as the, the thinker who... I guess, comes up with the idea of intersectionality. Um, it's a big mm -hmm. deal for identity politics and, I mean, all politics, really. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's good. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, but <laughs> she wrote this uh, cool article in the New Republic called When Blackness is a Pre-Existing Condition, How Modern Disaster Relief Has Hurt African-American Communities. Um, and she has um, some really good ways to put it. I'm just going to maybe read some quotes from her really quick. Uh, mm -hmm. So she writes, people of color whose chances of survival were handicapped by generations of human engineered disasters before they found themselves in the path of a natural one. Their deaths will overtake them silently and without fanfare unless we are able to speak of common threats in a non-colorblind way that matches the devastating scale of the crisis at hand. Um, then she goes on to say a little bit later in the article, we're all in this together. Liberal, progressive, and moderate pundits have regularly intoned since the COVID-19 threat took over the country. This isn't the time to chart the course of the pandemic suffering along the coordinates of race, gender, or other characteristics, they will say. Racism should surely count as a pre-existing condition, yet to acknowledge as much appears to be a crude assertion from another era, something we can ill afford to consider when the body counts include people of all races. The reflexive appeal to a post-racial and post-intersectional sentiment in the set in the face of racialized disaster is itself the key reason that racial disaster capitalism continues to destroy black lives and black communities. Um, I like what Crenshaw is saying here because I mean, she's like hitting the nail on the head, I guess, when it comes to the, you know, like the, we're all in this together vibe. Um, people are going to 
people are going to say like, listen, um, you can't just say this is a thing that's affecting black communities or whatever. It's affecting all races and whatever. But um, what she's saying here is like, no, that's, <laughs> that's not true. If you kind of look at the history of public health at the, uh, at, at the analyses of the ways that structural and environmental racism have decimated uh, black people's health for like a long time. I, I just like the idea of like what she says here is, is racism should count as a preexisting condition that, um, that white supremacy has built a situation that has marginalized black communities to the extent that like they suffer bodily harm just by living. And I think that is uh, an idea that uh, I don't know, all the people protesting uh, uh, the, the lockdown orders or whatever should think about a little bit more. (laughs) A lot lot more. They They should, they should stop (laughs) doing whatever they're doing and only think this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a, a huge piece. Um, and it, it's important, too, to recognize that it's not... Um, th- these crises that disproportionately affect populations are not, um, you know... Uh, they're not, like, completely surprising, um, but they are uh, things that won't go away without people sort of uh, going out of their way to not only educate themselves and others about it, but, you know, organize against them. Um, the same is true for so many racialized communities. Uh, you know, in Canada, for example, um, indigenous people in particular suffer from a, a vast lack of not only healthcare but public infrastructure. You know, there's a huge drinking water crisis on many reserves, etc. There's a suicide crisis, all kinds of, of different um, issues that continue to uh, ravage those communities. Um, but one thing that's really fascinating is uh, the there was one um, First Nation whose name I'm forgetting right now, but they invited uh, uh, Cuban doctors to come to their communities. Uh, and this was before COVID-19. Um, they wanted to have uh, their own doctor so that they wouldn't have to leave their community and, and seek help, medical help elsewhere. Uh, and so then in light of the pandemic, they were doubly interested in, in creating this relationship and Cuba was willing, uh, but the Canadian government refused and said that, well, we can take care of it ourselves, which is such a, a bizarre thing to say because they don't, you know, they actively refuse to take care of it themselves. Um, hence the the need to find other kinds of care relationships. And uh, it, all that to say, it's important to recognize that these kinds of structural racist uh, um, configurations that make up the United States and Canada and other parts of the world too, uh, they persist out of design. Like, you know, they're not just kind of people overlooking a problem here and there. These are uh, problems that could be solved, but, you know, the political will isn't there. And also perhaps because the political pressure is not there. And that's a big problem. Yeah, totally. Um, They could be solved. I mean, it would be at this point, though, it could be solved, but it would be like a generational process, you know? Right. It's such a huge um, it's such a huge problem. It takes I mean, it would take a massive organizing effort and uh, we need to do it. (laughs) That's all there is to it, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, I guess like, you know, we're rounding up all these points. It helps us see and understand the problem a little bit better. Um, that class war happens along um, economic lines, but also white supremacy plays a big part in it um, as well. And yeah, we don't want to reduce, uh, we don't want to reduce this to like, you know, class only or something. We're not those types of communists. Um, (laughs) so, so not everyone is equally susceptible to COVID-19. Um, you know, the next step is recognizing that this isn't an accident and it's, you know, a product of class war, like we've been saying and white supremacy. Um, so like what are Christians on the left supposed to think or do about these things? That's a good question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because these issues are systemic and deep, they require just the complete transformation of society. Uh, Christians have to engage in class war and white supremacy and like really fight back against it. So, you know, um, we're all in this together, but we need to start thinking through what solidarity looks like in these situations and um, and, and like what we can actually do about any of that. Um, well, I don't know. That's like a pretty okay. That that seems like pretty specific to the United States, um, Dean. How has this been playing out? Um, you know, along class and racial lines uh, in the more global context. Yeah, um, I mean, it's uh, so the wild thing about this whole situation is that. Uh, what we've been talking about here in the United States and to a lesser extent Canada is, of course, a, a microcosm of how capitalism operates around the world. 
um, which is, again, in this kind of way of dispossessing people economically, but also uh, along racial lines, too. Um, just to start out, maybe with the, the economic piece, uh, in terms of metapolitics, you know, it's no surprise the United States remains um, the, uh, the global economic power, and it, it does everything that it can to keep that role, um, <clears throat> faced with some, some contenders these days, but still holding on. Uh, and in light of that, it is able to uh, throw its weight around in ways that other countries are not. Um, it has more purchasing power. It has more international power. And of course, it has uh, a lot more arms if it really came to it. That's always the, the hidden threat behind all negotiations. Um, and I think what's important about the COVID-19 crisis is recognizing that what that means is when, when push comes to shove, the United States is the one that shoves hardest, <laughs> no matter what. Um, so I want to start with an example that uh, takes us actually into the U.S.'s conflict with uh, even its own allies in Europe, and then maybe we'll talk a little more about imperialism in a minute. So uh, people have probably seen there's lots of stories about how the United States is essentially stealing or hijacking or whatever verb you want to use, uh, but taking, uh, that's certainly one way that you have to put it, taking uh, masks and um, aid equipment that are supposed to be going to certain places in the world and taking them for themselves, which is, of course, bizarre because the U.S. is garbage at distributing them anyway, uh, even in its own country. But um, here's just one example. So this is in a, a Guardian article called U.S. Hijacking Mask Shipments and Rush for Coronavirus Protection. Um, there are lots of examples in this article, but I want to just start with one just vignette, I guess, to, to show what this is like. So the article says this, U.S. buyers waving wads of cash managed to wrest control of a consignment of masks as it was about to be dispatched from China to one of the worst hit coronavirus areas of France, according to two French officials. The masks were on a plane at Shanghai Airport that was ready to take off when the U.S. buyers turned up and offered three times what their French counterparts were paying. Jean Daughter, or Jean Rotner, sorry, a doctor and president of the Grand Est Regional Council, said part of the order of several million masks headed for the region where intensive care units are inundated with COVID-19 patients had been lost to the buyers. Uh, so there, there's more to it in the story, but this just gives you an example, I guess, of uh, how capitalism um, does continue to uh, uh, operate. You know, at the end of the day, um, this isn't giving each according to ability and according to need or something like that. This is uh, each according to buying power. And in this case, the U.S. has more buying power, at least in this situation. These people from the U.S. had more buying power than the uh, the French um, people who were, were promised these masks or expecting them. And uh, again, the, the absurdity here is, of course, uh, mass, there's a, a vast mask shortage in the U.S., and the U.S. Is, uh, has proven time again that it's not capable of distributing these masks in an equi equitable way in its own country. So what the U.S. is doing on a global scale right now, truly in the middle of the pandemic, is uh, taking masks from other people, taking equipment, um, other kinds of research even from other countries, uh, and stealing it for itself and then doing a shitty job even then of uh, finding a way to, you know, <laughs> put those things to use. Yeah, it's evil and stupid at the same time. Crazy. Big, big, weird combination of things. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so, I mean, this this example of France is just one of kind of how the U.S.'s buying power, it, you know, it outstrips the buying power even of a, a country like France. Um, again, this is one small vignette, but it's uh, representative of, of lots and lots of stories. Uh, the things get a lot more complicated, though, when you start talking about countries who are not in comfortable relationships already with the U.S., um, countries that are sanctioned by the United States, uh, and also, as a result of those sanctions, usually already dealing with multiple crises or having to sort out uh, on a, a shoestring budget how to run, you know, a nation. Um, so the most famous, of course, is Cuba as a country that has long been sanctioned by the U.S. and uh, has managed to survive anyway. Um, and Cuba has, in particular, been putting up a, a really impressive, I think, like global PR campaign in the middle of all of this, but also solidarity campaign, like sending uh, medicine and, and medical uh, people and doctors all around the world in a show of solidarity. Um, their reward for that has been to be continually sanctioned by the U.S. Uh, so um, there are lots of uh, uh, ways in which this makes crises even worse. But just to add this kind of stealing piece of the puzzle here, um, there's a great uh, article 
um, that was in uh, the Associated Press, so it's gotten around. But in the CTV News uh, in Canada, the title is Cuba, U.S. Embargo Blocks Coronavirus Aid Shipment from Asia. So let me add this piece, and then we can talk maybe about why this is also reflective of kind of those class and race dynamics we talked about earlier. So the article says, Cuban officials say a shipment of coronavirus aid from Asia's richest man, Jack Ma, has been blocked by by the six-decade U.S. embargo on the island. Carlos M. Pereira, Cuba's ambassador to China, said on his blog this week that Ma's foundation tried to send, tried to send Cuba 100,000 face masks and 10 COVID-19 diagnostic kits last month, along with other aid, including ventilators and gloves. Human rights groups have been calling for the U.S. to lift sanctions on Venezuela, Cuba, and Iran during the coronavirus epidemic in order to permit the flow of more aid. The Trump administration has argued that only the country's governments would benefit from the sanctions relief. Um, the article goes on to say a lot more, of course, but um, I think what's wild about this story is, uh, you know, on the one hand, you have the U.S. Uh, basically stealing stuff from France, um, its own ally, and, uh, you know, that sucks for them, but uh, France is still at least a, a welcome part in the global community, like, it will be able to figure it out Um much harder for sure, but it will figure it out. Uh, Cuba is sanctioned by the U.S. and then by proxy the rest of the world. Um, and in light of that, uh, already it, it has to deal with all these problems, but it can't even uh, receive these kinds of aid uh, programs because of uh, sheer anti-communism, which is, again, distributed along class and, and racial lines uh, affecting people in the third world or so-called third world disproportionately. So it just kind of scales up um a lot of these issues we've been talking about, I think. Yeah, it definitely does scale them up. And uh, I think it's, yeah, you know, the, the exact same things that are happening locally are also happening globally. Um, the United States is really dead set on preserving a certain type of life for a certain group of people and not for anyone else. And man, the the global level things are so bizarre, though, because it's just like, what happens to these masks? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the mask shortage in the United States is so extreme. Like, okay, this is this. Okay. If I was a, if I was a worse person and I saw these kinds of things happening and I, and I was getting like a mask from the government, I would think to myself, at least, you know, this is horrible, but I guess I'm glad I have a mask. But like <laughs> the situation is so bizarre that, that it's like the situation is horrible. They're stealing masks from Cuba and like they're, they're buying them and, you know, kind of stealing them from France as well. But like, and what do we have to show for it? It's not like anyone has a mask. In the United right. States. Like the only reason I have one is because my mom sewed me one <laughs> on her sewing machine. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's, it's so bizarre. It, it's just, it's strange when people are blatantly imperialistic and racist and evil and they disregard mm -hmm. people's lives, but also like have nothing to show for it. <laughs> it's just the strangest yeah. thing to me. I know. Um, yeah. I mean, we were, we were talking this week already uh, off air, at least about how, uh, like there are all these wild stories about how like states are competing with one another in order to get these supplies, which is already nuts. Um, but like there's like headlines about, you know, governors having to like fly on the same flight as uh, like mask shipments from like South Korea and then having to land with like the National Guard to make sure Donald Trump doesn't take them away. Mm -hmm. It's just like absolutely bonkers. Yeah, um, it is a crazy way to do healthcare in a country. I don't know why <laughs> anyone desires this other than, yeah. you know, like uh, medical companies giving politicians a lot of money, but like, this is um, the worst way to handle a public health crisis. Yeah. In the richest country in the world. Um, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, to add a little bit more on the structural violence piece, um, I want to pull out a little bit from the United Nations, and then we could talk a little bit more about structural violence again here, I think. Um, so the UN, you know, they do some good stuff. They do some not so good stuff, whatever. Uh, but this is a good thing. Um, so there's a, an article that came out in UN News, and there was a, a whole report put together by some rapporteurs, or however you say that word, <laughs> some special UN folks. Um <laughs> Anyway, they said uh, that they that the U.S. should lift the Cuba embargo or risk many lives lost to COVID-19. So the article says this, COVID-19 is not only deadly, it also inflicts a normal physical and psychological suffering. 
especially in countries where medical personnel are unable to perform their professional duties due to a lack of adequate equipment and available medicine. A chorus of voices across the UN system have emphasized since the onset of the pandemic that bringing the virus under control will only be achieved through multilateralism, cooperation, and solidarity. In their statement, the UN experts voiced alarm that the U.S. embargo on Cuba, along with sanctions imposed on other countries, seriously undermines efforts to build that much-needed solidarity. In the face of such global change, no one—excuse me—in the face of such a global challenge, no one should be denied vital medical care. They stressed. Uh, what I really appreciate about this take or this line or however you want to put it is, uh, you know, there's a recognition, of course, that live, more and more lives will be lost, uh, and these lives are considered less. Cuban lives are considered less than U.S. lives uh, from the perspective of the United States. Um, but even more than that is the attention to profound psychological suffering that continues to happen. And, I mean, you just have to imagine, like, there we've seen all these stories of, like, doctors in Italy having to make these horrible decisions, and then increasingly around the rest of the world having to make decisions about, like, basically deciding who lives or dies, right? Um, taking people off of ventilators, giving them to others, etc. cetera. Uh, and you have to imagine that that is an extremely traumatic experience, both for medical care practitioners, um, for people who have to go through those experiences or their loved ones that have to go through them. Uh, and that attention to even that, that persistent violence, like this is a psychological wound that will be present in these countries and in these communities for years to come, even if we find a vaccine and, and eradicate coronavirus. Um, that violence will persist and it will leave scars. And, you know, that's assuming the wounds heal at some point. So I think it's it's just important to always recognize that that structural violence of capital and capitalism uh, on a global scale continues to uh, to open up these kinds of wounds in countries that are basically deemed uh, irrelevant or the lives there are deemed as uh, already unjust just because of some political difference. I think it's a good way to put it. Um in both registers, you know, the local and the the global, um, it's pretty apparent that, I don't know, the, the United States has definitely manufactured a crisis for itself because of its like, I mean, because of its own pathologies, for sure, because of the logic of capitalism, because of its like, I don't know, the complete ineptitude of the United States leaders. I don't know if ineptitude is a word, but I'm going to use it right now. <laughs> it's just uh it, it seems like you know this is a whole this is a whole situation that um it, it's bad for sure right i mean a global pandemic is bad kind of no matter what but uh because of because of just the the way that we think and and act and the sort of patterns of abuse that the united states has um has doled out among people it's just going to be so much worse for that you know um, when it, when it comes to structural violence, like, I think it's important to, to, I mean, like I said, at the top of the episode, right. It's important to recognize this as violence, um, it, like mass murder. Um, it's genocide. It's, I, I don't know, however you want to frame it. Um, I'll keep saying mass murder because that's what William Barber said. And that's my touchstone <laughs> for this whole, uh, moral crusade, I guess I have right now. Um, but like, I think framing it that way is really important because if, you know, if it's mass murder, it means that someone's behind it, that someone is is doing this, right? And um, Christians really have two options. I mean, anyone has two options, but Christians are, that's our constituency. That's who we're talking to right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have two options, right? You can either like, I guess, bury your head in the sand and not do anything about it, right? That's like, and by doing so, you just basically join the people who are perpetrating these crimes. And or or you can organize against it, and like that's basically it. Those are the two options you have. Um, like right now in this episode, we're trying to point out the very stark contradictions of capitalism, um, and if you see them, like you have to do something about them. <laughs> uh, which is, I guess, a hard thing, maybe an easy thing for me to say, or a hard thing to do. But um, I think, given what happened this past May Day and um, the the things that have been happening, sort of in the labor movement and in other sort of activist circles, it's clear that there are places and people that you can plug in with. I think that uh, you gotta you gotta do it. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. You just gotta do it. Uh, there's definitely a, an analytic piece to this, and also an organizing piece. Um, both of them are difficult and challenging in their own ways. I think Christians have, a, as we said, a particularly difficult time figuring out questions of violence, figuring out questions of systemic issues in general. It's just, you know, 
Christianity, at least as it's developed um, in the West in particular and in the U.S. and places like Canada, is is hyper-individualized. It teaches you to think about your relationship with Jesus, even if you're not an evangelical, as this kind of personal affair. Um, and even within more liberal uh, traditions, um, the the social dimension is still, it, it doesn't penetrate down to uh, class struggle itself or class war. It's, it's always reformist, right? Never transformational or, or revolutionary. Um, and so I think it's, it's important for Christians to figure out, well, what are the roadblocks that we have to thinking about that? And also, how can we kind of remain um, aware of those things. On the organizing piece, uh, you know, churches do all kinds of very important work. Um, here in Toronto, it, it's a heroic effort. Like, churches have been um, really kind of leading the way, even pressuring the city politically in terms of its failure to respond to uh, the homelessness crisis and that sort of thing. Um, and then even beyond that, though, to address these issues, like, We'll have to build uh, political organizations. We'll have to continue to fund mutual aid organizations. Um, and we'll have to especially prioritize those communities that are disproportionately affected. Um, with that being said, too, I mean, I don't know where you live, obviously, but uh, no doubt there's probably a, a mutual aid organization um, and a fund that's being put together for uh dispossessed communities um, and other people who are just vulnerable and, and unable to pay their bills or, or whatever, um, in which case you can probably find that without too much difficulty on Facebook or Googling around or whatever. Um, you should do that if you have money to spare or time to spare. Uh, but in any case, all that to say, uh, it's important to hold those two things together, right? The the analytic and the organizational. I think because <laughs> if you're stuck in the analytic side, you, you basically just get extremely depressed. Uh, right. At least maybe I'm just being confessional, <laughs> but <laughs> I do. Um, and if you're stuck only on the organizing side, you get like extremely exhausted and burnt out. Um, so uh, yeah, Christians have good reasons to do both, I think. And hopefully you can find a way to balance them. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Um, you got to do both. And uh, I mean, things aren't going to go back to normal ever again. So you better get used to the idea. And they were bad before. Yeah, that's right. And they're only going to get worse. Um, so do <laughs> something about it, I guess. <laughs> that's the at the end of the communist manifesto it's you know uh all working people of the world unite like all the all these big exclamation points the yeah. end of uh, every magnificast episode is a do something i guess yeah i mean do something i guess you've got nothing to lose but your chains Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can find us on Twitter at The Magnificast. You can send us an email at themagnificast at gmail.com. You can find some playlists that Matt's been putting together on Spotify of some of our greatest hits or thematically linked episodes on things like evangelicalism or violence or whatever it may be. Uh, you can also pick up some merch if you want on redbubble.com. You can just search the Magnificast there. Our music is by Amoria Armstrong, and our outro is by the Illogical Spoon. See you next week. Get up the church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, where you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late.